Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I got to switch it on. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. I am Jennifer Shahadi, and today I've got an extra special, dare I say, delicious guest. It is Jonathan Korbla. Korbla is a man of many games. We met through chess, where he's a blitz legend and renowned coach. He's also a Jeopardy! champion and a host of the game show, Masterminds, on the Game Show Network, where he works with Ken Jennings. Jonathan has been on over 13 game shows from Cash Cab to Who Wants to Be a Millionaire to Wheel of Fortune. He even appeared in a few projects I produced, like X-Chess and American Chess Star. Many of the games that Jonathan has mastered involve grids, whether it's Jeopardy or Chess or Scrabble. And honestly, that's why I've wanted him on the show from the start. I've been nagging him for two years. And finally, I captured him for the grid. He brought a hand that he played with 9-5 suited just a few days ago. It was in a home game that I played in too. Jonathan is my first live guest on the grid for over a year. We are at a beautiful beach chess and poker retreat weekend. And so Jonathan, I have to thank you for taking time out from Champagne and Sicilians for this little chat. It's actually really, really funny. I'm glad that we were able to uh, meet up this weekend. We're out here in Southampton and... I'm glad I was able to genuinely fill a spot in the grid with a hand that you saw me play. So that was actually kind of fun. It was, yeah, 9-5 of clubs. 9-5 of clubs. And tell us a little bit about your kind of relationship to poker now. I came in with the big poker boom of Chris Moneymaker, like many people our age, uh, when it was first on ESPN and, uh, you know, the, the World Series started growing and we started meeting these guys like Phil Hellmuth and Phil Ivy and whatnot, and I became extremely interested in playing. So I, I got a party poker account, a full tilt poker account, and luckily, living in New York City, I had a lot of opportunities to play in some underground poker games. So I would say, of all of the poker I've played in my life, probably 80% of it has taken place in underground games, mostly in New York City, but also other places around the country, starting with cash games. You know, when my bankroll was really low, one, two, no limit, moving up to two, five and five, five. These days I'm playing a lot of five, 10 PLO. So bring us back to those days. What was poker like then? Well, there were so many people who played and because of the numbers, so many people who thought that they were amazing. So many people who considered themselves professional, regardless of how much they could support themselves with the game, regardless of how much they think they knew. They, you know, perhaps read a few books, played a bunch, got a few caches. And I can't lie, I probably was one of those people. You know, we were all kind of swept up in the euphoria of everyone being able to play. There were poker rooms opening up 
all over the place on riverboat casinos and Indian reservations in AC in Vegas and, you know, Foxwoods, Mohegan Sun. So everywhere I would go, for instance, there was a long-term chess tournament at the Foxwoods Casino in Connecticut. And, you know, I would often play maybe the first few rounds, get a little bored, and then eventually miss around and go to the poker games because I was doing a little bit better in the poker games. So definitely poker was... There was cachet. I mean, if you recall at the time, they had the Heads Up Poker Tournament on NBC. Celebrity Poker Showdown, Exactly, Celebrity Poker Showdown. So yeah, poker was in the zeitgeist, definitely, between 2003 and 2008-ish. And I would say that was really a part of the heyday of me playing. You're good at so many different games. Like, you remind me of another great guest we had, Bill Chen. Like, you play all of them. Go, Scrabble chess poker trivia what is it about poker that kind of keeps you in well the social aspect of poker is fun i would say if you were to try to pin me down in poker there would be a jamie gold element to my play there's a a lot of table talk a lot of trying to get into my opponent's heads but that's the same for my chess you know i do a lot of trash talk when i'm playing chess and i want to feed my opponent a lot of information rather than you know, a limited amount of information. I want to attract action so that way I get paid off in my hands. And it's a obviously a risky style of play. You know, there's a lot of volatility to it, but I'm always getting action because I strain believability. You know, Jen, you and I have played Mafia a lot and we've talked a little bit about the way that I try to tell the truth or lie. And yet, for some reason, my delivery, my cadence, my just general persona, people often think I'm lying about things even when I'm telling the truth. And that's, that can be a great thing in poker, you know, when I'm putting a lot of money into a pot and people just think I'm completely full of it. So definitely, like, I've used that to my advantage over the years. However, I think sometimes I, I sniff a little bit too much of my own stuff so that I kind of can get punished for my own hubris from time to time. But I would say in poker, that is my mentality. And that's why poker is one of my favorite games, especially, you know, when I'm feeling very in, in tuned and, and at key. But, you know, overall for my favorite games, the, the game I won most recently, I enjoy the game shows and I enjoy being on television. And, you know, Jeopardy was... A pinnacle achievement for me and a lifetime goal and all of the things that I've done on television whether it's Wheel of Fortune or Millionaire or Cash Cab and now currently Masterminds it definitely is the connection of a lot of the talents and the joys and the skill set that I find is uh, unique to me so that's why I do enjoy the game shows perhaps it's just so much more unique I guess Yeah, well, you get to bring in your personality and your strategy and your tactics. I want to ask you a lot about Jeopardy, but let's get into the hand first and then we'll get more to Jeopardy. Nine five suited. Tell us about this particular cash game. It was a fun cash game. A lot of new players as well as some some veterans like ourselves. And you had the nine five suited. Tell us about how you ended up in this hand and and the villain. Very, very funny game. So, you know, we're all buying in, you know, 500 to 1,000, you know, sort of a fun little casual cash game. Few millionaires in the game. And just to sort of give you guys an idea of what the game is like. So anyway, the game breaks down where the villain is a kid named Max, a friend of mine, who 
does not have much poker experience. I would say, you know, lifetime, maybe eight hours of poker experience, 10 hours tops. But, you know, he definitely has sort of a, a, a basis of, of the fundamentals of the game. And, you know, one part of his lack of experience comes up a little bit later. We're all dealt out. I see 9-5 and something funny happens. And I think one of the reasons why I play this hand so wildly is the kid to my left, my buddy Greg, asked me to sweat because I was the table captain earlier on and like in the first few hands. And then he asked to sweat. So I was like, all right, yeah, go ahead, check out my cards. He sees my 9-5 of club suited. And usually I think one of my weaknesses is when someone is sweating my hand, I definitely tend to play hyper aggressive just because I think it's that fun excitement of like, you know, you knowing that you probably wouldn't play the hand this way. And I'm like, how? Oh, why not? The flop comes ace of diamonds, uh, king of clubs, four of clubs. Ace of diamonds, king of clubs, four of clubs. You have the nine, five of clubs. You opened so early position, eight handed and max in the cutoff. You with nine, five suited. And I think Charlie on the button also called the first uh, bet that I had made. And I think I had maybe made it 50 to go, something like that. And, you know, call, call. And the turn card was maybe a 10 of hearts, something non-integral. But I think it could have made a, a queen jack straight, something like that. But it didn't feel like it had changed much. And then I, I believe I fired another bet on the turn. This time, I think I had made it 100. And again, I got a call from Max. And, and Charlie was, got out of the way. And Charlie gets out of the way. So now we're heads up. You know, Greg knows what I have. And, you know, he's kind of waiting for the club. And... You know, at that point, we're all kind of jokes and fun and games. The host of the game, she brings me a beer. And, you know, we're all cracking wise and whatnot. And the dealer, who was sort of like <laughs> shaky, comes up and he puts the last card on, which is the final club to make my flush. And unfortunately, that final club was the ace of clubs. However, you know, I, I was fully aware of Max's neophyte status. Right, right. And he probably, like, you would think that if he had two pair or a set... There were some bets coming. ...that he would have been raising because he'd be so excited, right? Right. New On player. the flop, no raise. Yeah. Turn, no raise. And it turns out that although he had flopped well, he didn't know really what his hand was. He could not read his hand. So, since that Ace of Clubs comes on the river, making him a boat, I was kind of slightly nervous. That it could make him a boat. Of it's course. Possible, of course, yeah. For some reason, my read was that, does he have top pair? We're a weaker Maybe? flush than yeah. your, I mean, a yeah. higher flush. That's another concern, of course. Yes, of course. I, for some reason, I didn't even, I didn't think that he would even. Because he wasn't start. checking his cards for the clubs. Exactly. Yeah. He wasn't checking. He, he wasn't caring. And, you know, that final ace comes. I'm like, oh, well, I believe he's probably made trips. If he's really, really confident. I'm putting him on ace queen here. I'm putting him on. You know, something solid, you know, maybe ace deuce. That's, that was what was in my head, you know. Ace deuce suited. Exactly. And you know? ace eight that he just thinks is a, right. maybe a better hand than it is. Sure. Right. And I'm thinking, how can I take advantage of his excitement of his uh, trips? So I take a big swig of the beer. Greg looks at me. He knows I made my flush. I'm like, ah, hell with it. All in. And then Max starts looking and thinking about it. And I say to him, do you have a boat? And he looks right at me and he says, what's a boat? Ah, what's a boat? And I say, huh? And then he says, whatever I call. So I turn over my flush 
And he says, I have three aces. <laughs> nice. You win. Well, not so fast because he did not know that his kicker was a four. And there was a four on the board. He indeed had the full house. I was lost. And uh, as the story goes, I was the uh, ignominious loser. You know, since I've played thousands of hours of poker, you know, in, in certain games, you would say, you know, oh, you know, why did you slow roll? But he didn't realize he was even doing that because yeah. he did not know he had a two pair in the beginning. He did not know he had a boat at the end. But what's a boat? What's a boat? Anyway, I mean, what is a boat, really? <laughs> what is a boat? Right? <laughs> More of a dinghy. You know, I thought he had a cruise. I could have had Ace King. He wouldn't have known why he lost. I mean, and... a lot of people out here have a lot of boats, right? Oh, my so... goodness. This is, this is a place where, you know, we go regularly <laughs> water skiing. So I said, do you have a boat? He said, of course I have a few. <laughs> I have, I don't have a yacht yet, my friend, but uh, <laughs> don't we all have boats at this table? That's a tough poker game when everybody's got a boat. Yeah, doubt. but not the kind of boat that uh, I wanted him to have. He had the worst kind of boat for the hand, which is why I lost. But he had great instincts overall. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a lot about the new player. If a new player has good instincts, they they know to raise with good hands and, you know, just uh, try, to, try to kind of be sticky when you match something in this loosey-goosey game, like. He had the instincts. It makes sense because a lot of these guys are also in finance and math. So they they kind of stick to some of those basics pretty easily. Max is one of the brightest young real estate minds actually currently in in the country, in my opinion. He's doing some really big things down south and he definitely has his uh, nose to the grindstone and his finger on the pulse. Let's get him a t-shirt that said, what's a boat? I think that's a great (laughs) t-shirt. Love it. One of the things that I've been dying to talk to you about is Jeopardy. And the reason is because my podcast is all about the collision of this hyper-specific one hand in one place here, this beautiful weekend in the Hamptons, really like the first party I've been to post-pandemic. And then there's also the, the strategic and the theoretical. To me, before I watched you on Jeopardy and some of my other friends on Jeopardy, I didn't realize that Jeopardy had so much strategy in it. I thought it was just like, you need to know all the stuff, right? And then if you know all that stuff, you are going to do well because, you know, you'll Alex Turek, RAP, will read you the, these questions and you'll get more of them right than your opponents. And I realized that there was some strategy with like the Daily Doubles and Final Jeopardy. But in fact, there's so much more to that with the grid itself. When you approach a game like Jeopardy, and I've been a Jeopardy fan since I was a child, uh, it's kind of the lifelong thought process for me. It all started out with just kind of like, do I know the answers? But then as I started to really take it seriously in terms of applying for the game over the years and, you know, sort of trying out and failing and trying out and failing, I started to realized little nuances, little in-between advantages that the great players, especially the multi-day champions, have over the players who don't win, you know, as often. And that comes from, A, knowing the board. And when I say knowing the board, if the category is G in history, and they ask you, you know, what uh, treaty ended the war of 1812 and like you know about like three or four treaties and you think oh well that could have been the treaty of paris or something you weren't really even alert enough to the board which is to sort of know what's in quotation marks and know that you should prime your mind to say something that starts with a g no matter what 
or, you know, three-letter this, or, you know, anagrams, or what have you. That's just the, the start of the alertness of it. But that's not even the strategy. The strategy is keeping your opponent from their strengths, making sure that if you know that you're playing with a daily double hunter, starting out with a guy like Chuck Forrest, and then William Chu, and then finally James Holzhauer, those are the premium daily double hunters in Jeopardy history. And what they do is they... They get the daily doubles early and then hammer them to gain these big, big leads. And also, you know, Forrest was the one who introduced this tactic known as the Forrest Bounce. Because we try to, for instance, look at a category like G in history, let's say, to go back to that uh, analogy, and then try to sort of think about Gs while we're playing the game, we can buzz in and get our mind faster so that we can be ready to win. A player like Chu or Holzauer is using the forest bounce, bouncing from G in history to potpourri to great quarterbacks, and then back to food and drink, back to potpourri. That way, it's this chaotic running back and forth to unsettle the opponent and make it harder for them. While they're practicing the game at home, they're doing this kind of forest bounce, whether they're on the J archive or they're on their own Jeopardy simulator. Whereas most people just watch the game. They're watching the game in their own way, so that they can play in their own way, so that people can't play the conventional way. That's a huge strategy. Another strategy is the betting strategy in Jeopardy. A lot of it is simple game theory, things like the prisoner's dilemma, things like, you know, when all three are tied, or even when two players are tied for the lead and one person has a dollar. You know, that actually happened to my friend uh, Melissa Collins. She's a, a champion from earlier in 2021, just a few months ago, where she was at a distant third place with only maybe $1,000. And the two players in first were tied with over $10,000. They both had to bet it all because theoretically they can't bet any number except for all of it because if they get it right, they only have a chance to win if they make sure they cover the other person. So they were in that kind of game theoretical dilemma. So what happened is all three contestants got it wrong and Melissa was strategically wise enough in Final Jeopardy to not bet at all. She had nothing to gain and everything to gain from keeping her money because if all three got it wrong, she would be the one who won. That's exactly what happened. So yeah, there's a lot of things that you can learn from message boards, from you know blogs and other people who've played the game books in terms of the illicit and like underlying uh, gamesmanship and thoughts in Jeopardy and even something to the lines of, back to the analogy again, G in history. If I know that I'm going to make sure I hear the clue and I respond with a question that starts with a G, I'm actually going to tell whoever the host is, uh, I'll take history for 2000. I'm not going to say G. I want to keep that in my mind, but I don't want to prime my opponents. Because I want to keep certain things almost away from them. Now, obviously, they can know. They can see it up in front of them. But there's just so many different things that can give you a disadvantage. And to overwhelm your opponent, to make it harder for them to think the way you're thinking is important. So, for instance, I remember reading in Ken Jennings' book, who is my current co-star on the show Masterminds, who's the greatest of all time, the Jeopardy Hall of Famer. At one point in his book, he talks about during a Jeopardy taping that there's often a stoppage, you know, for a variety of reasons, perhaps some technical issue, uh, some clue might have been revealed incorrectly because, you know, a producer heard someone say 800, but 
you know, maybe turned over 600 clue. So then they have to stop play. And at that point, all of the contestants need to turn their backs to the big board because, you know, other clues might be revealed and they don't want to, you know, ruin the integrity of play. But it's at that moment that you should be still playing the game. At every moment while you're playing Jeopardy, you should not look in the audience and wave at your parents or be excited or, you know, the calm focus of saying to yourself, okay, what is remaining on the board? All right. Oh, food and drink, maybe Greek food and drink. So in my head, instead of just waiting, I'm going to list all the things that I'm going to ring in and possibly say. What do I know about this category? What do I know about, you know, Hall of Fame quarterbacks? I'm saying to myself, all right. You know, Roger Staubach, Bart Starr, Terry Bradshaw. And I'm ready so that what I do actually call that category, I have all of these answers on the tip of my tongue. And that way, I know I can be faster. Because the key is, we're all going to get those answers. All of us are going to know them. It's the one who's, who has excellent timing and can recall. Because Jeopardy is really not a game of memory. It's a game of recall. So to be able to not only bring up earlier than I need to, the necessary possible answers, but then have the accurate timing to recall it when necessary. So that's one of those little details that just makes the champions do better than the most of the people, two out of three, who don't succeed on Jeopardy. I mean, I love a lot of the things you said. I, Your friend Melissa, that story is so amazing because it reminds me of like ICM and poker where like two people are going at it as like the chip leaders and then like little short stack is just sitting there and like making exactly. <laughs> making all this cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching <laughs> just by watching the carnage. I love that story. One of my great <laughs> wins in a poker tournament when I uh, cashed something around 40K in the Taj Mahal was exactly like that. I showed up to the final table, perhaps like the seventh or eighth stack place. And, you know, to just to get to the final table, there might have been like a thousand people in this tournament. Just to get to the final table, I had this insane run of cards. But then... It all just went down to a trickle. And at the final table, everyone was just hacking at each other. I'm talking volleys, haymakers. And I might have played three uncontested hands, and I just made it to the top final two just by dodging everyone else. And like, I, I know a lot of the poker players who probably listen to The Grid might have a similar story of some win that they had where all they had to do was just not mess it up. And, and that's two of my big wins happened that way. It's actually one of the better feelings in poker. There are many... Uh, blanket statements about myself that I am unabashed and unashamed to admit. And yes, one of them is I was a nude model in college and uh, we were playing a kind of version of To Tell the Truth. So you had to also try to make the audience believe that you shared the exact same anecdote as me. And I wanted to make sure everyone understood this about me. And yet you still won. Part of the reason that I have chosen this lifestyle is sort of a deep averseness to the grind of hard work. I mean, poker players can all kind of relate. You know, we, we see the grand, huge amounts of money, you know, swimming back and forth. And then you have this kind of like Henry Hill and Goodfellas kind of mentality where like, you know, man, these poor schnooks who wake up every day and they uh, clock in to their, uh, their jobs. Well, you know, me, I just kind of like, catch a two-outer and I make more money than you have your 
whole year. Like I, you know, grew up not so uh, well off. So I watched a lot of people waking up at 5 a.m. and, you know, kind of grinding an entire day of work. And, you know, no offense or, or you know, insult to anyone with uh, that amazing work ethic. In fact, from time to time, I'm, I'm jealous of that uh, virtue. However, it's a virtue I don't share. And uh, it's a part of the reason why when Who Wants to Be a Millionaire came out, I thought, this is my chance. You know, I, I have a great memory. And uh, I would rather sit down in a chair for 30 minutes and see if I can make a million dollars than, than grind. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just a, a been a recurring thing in my life. Every single time there's been an opportunity to uh, magnify my wealth and not necessarily punch into a conventional nine to five, I definitely will uh, will try to get rich quick. And by the way, you're referring to, I think what started it all, your appearance on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, when you cashed for a really nice sum. Yeah, well, I, I was only uh, uh, two questions away from the million dollar question. I was at the $250,000 question. And uh, I, I had my lifeline and I was excited to, to go for it. I was not fearless because, you know, I'm in for a penny, in for a pound with this mentality. Like, my philosophy is, like, I'm going for it. Like, I don't get onto these shows. And I think one of the ways that has made it much easier for me to get onto these shows is the producers understand that, you know, I, I've got the testicular fortitude to go for it. You know, a lot, a lot of contestants will, will do that. They'll say, like, oh, man, well, this is a lot of money. I think I'm going to stop. Uh, We've never seen that in poker. <laughs> All in is my favorite bet. It is my favorite bet. And I will let the... Uh, grid listeners also play along so uh i'm going for it and the question was what does an incunabulist collect i-n-c-u-n-a-b-u-l-i-s-t now do you already know the answer no would you like to hear the clues yes i mean the choices the choices the four choices because you know millionaires multiple choice were magic tricks butterflies old books and quotations what was the name again what does an incunabulist collect Incanabalist. Are you and, any good at etymology or linguistics? Um, no, but I think it's. I think I might know a couple that it's not. Okay. So wait, it's uh, what were the things again? Quotations. Magic tricks. Magic tricks. And old books. Old oh, books. Wow. And and okay, I'm gonna guess it's not butterflies because I feel like that's a different word. I, I don't. I can't recall the word right now, but I think it's a different one. Okay. And um, God, it doesn't sound like it would be books. So you've narrowed gonna, it down to magic tricks and. Oh, quotations. Quotations. So, That's gun so... to your head. Which one would you choose? Magic tricks or quotations? Um. Oh, it's a gun. Where's the gun? Um, <laughs> okay, I'm gonna go with uh, quotations. Interesting. Okay. Well, I had my fifty-fifty, mm-hmm. and I also knew it wasn't butterfly. It is a different word. Butterfly. Yeah. Uh, the genus is Lepidoptera, so they call a butterfly collector a lepidopterist. Now, the producers of Millionaire are particularly sinister because if you start talking your way through the answer to create more drama if you use your 50 50 what they'll do is they'll leave the thing that you think it is along with the right answer to make it extra extra hard for you that's brutal oh it's so brutal so they took out butterflies so you should have said nothing but you didn't know all this at the time i I wasn't as canny or savvy as i could you were more tactical not as strategic Exactly. And yeah. I was just, you know, more sincere to be honest. You were in your was, 20s at the time. Yeah, I was very young. I think yeah. I was 24 maybe. Yeah. So I knew it wasn't a lepidopterist, but I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want them to use anything against me because I was like, I think it's not, but maybe I'm wrong, you know, because you're in the hot seat. There's pressure. You're like, you start second guessing mm-hmm. even the things you know for sure. 
But also just based on Latin and Greek roots, there was nothing that pointed towards old books either. Yeah. You know, I didn't feel like there was any biblio Greek or, you know. Maybe the Lophile, for instance, is a somebody who loves books. Exactly, so yeah, exactly. it sounds like it wouldn't be books. And also just you would have thought somehow you would have heard that word already. If there was a word for a collector of old books, you're like, oh, I wouldn't know that word. I use my 50-50 and it eliminated butterflies, it eliminated magic tricks. Oh. And so it's down to quotations in old books. And I, like you, chose quotations. And Fudge. I never got a million dollars because it's old books. Incunabula are the books that were, you know, around the time of the first printing press. We're talking, uh, you know, Gutenberg. Really old, a- antique printed books. And yeah, in fact, I got a phone call from a mutual friend of ours who I was working for previously to being on Millionaire named Bruce Pandolfini. I guess you could tell everybody who Bruce is. Bruce is wonderful. I mean, he's a chess coach that was featured in the legendary Searching for Bobby Fischer, but he was also the consultant along with Gary Kasparov for The Queen's Gambit. Two of my very first chess books I've ever read, Chess Traps and Zaps, were written by Bruce Pandolfini. And not only is he a very accomplished author with over 30 books out, but he used to work in several bookstores, and two of them were named Incunabula stores. And for some reason, he had told me about these when I was working for him teaching chess at the Browning School. He's like, Jonathan, I'm so heartbroken. How many times have I told you that I worked for, you know, Grey's Incunabula or something like that? Like, of course, it's old books. I was screaming it, screaming it at the TV. I was rooting for you so hard. And like, you know, he loved having me work for him as a chess teacher, but he would have genuinely, sincerely, and and so kindly wanted me to win that million dollars. And I was a little heartbroken at that. And I was like, you know, you actually did tell me that. And, uh, you know, because... How do you retain certain... Hindsight's twenty twenty so because now I'm also thinking that, like, collecting quotations sounds like something that an Instagrammer does. Right. Like, <laughs> like, so, like how would you like, even describe someone who collects quotations? So how could that be, like, an old word? Now I'm starting to think, like, yeah, and there's so many different words for books and literature. Since yeah. then, I'll tell you something. I have, have become a quote collector, and I, I, I live and I laugh and I love. <laughs> <laughs> Treat both imposters the same. Correct. That, that's in the gym here, actually. Right. Um, that actually comes from Rudyard Kipling's poem, If. It's a good one for I looked that up yesterday, so I knew that. My memory is okay. Like, I, I'm sure I saw the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire clip of you a decade ago, but I totally forgot it, obviously. I, I got the answer wrong again. <laughs> Honestly, over the years, when I tell people that I've lost in Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and they inevitably ask me, oh my God, what did you get wrong? It kind of is really bittersweet because think about it i have nothing to gain from sharing the story i mean literally either the person's gonna be like oh yeah duh obviously or i didn't know and like they won't really care but like what do i think like i just have to relive my trauma and then let you be like how could you not know this obvious answer and i'm like okay i don't know i used to think it would be the most traumatic thing to make a mistake on tv for a million dollars like, if you really think about it, would it have changed your life that much? You, you got a good life. Oh, no, abs- no regrets. Absolutely, yeah. Jen, no regrets. But it is the symbolism. I'm talking in, like, yeah. the true semiotics of being a man and saying, yes, I am the millionaire. <laughs> you know, it has nothing to do with, like, gee, even what's in my bank account. It's just, like, holding up a big novelty check. Is something that is, uh, yeah, it, it's worth more than even being Bill Gates sometimes. I'm just like, yeah, fuck it, guys. I did it. 
that that kind of thing you know that's like the vibe but like you know listen the the world series of poker offers that opportunity so does a lot of other games that i could have won i mean you know i went on jeopardy right after that you know a few years after that you know there have been several million dollar winners on jeopardy so you know just this path in life that i've taken is filled with potential and it ain't over you know i'm still going for big caches any games that i play so absolutely no regrets no regrets and uh I'm very, very happy to have been able to achieve all I have with the amount of work that I've put into it. Well, I think you don't give yourself enough credit personally. I mean, I don't know what goes into your studying for all these games, but I think that you have wanted to avoid the grind, something a lot of poker players can relate to. I bet you can also relate to poker players realizing that as the game changes, they have to be on their feet, they have to do different things, and that sometimes the work is intense, even the stress and anxiety of going on a show and knowing that you might lose a million dollars in front of millions of people. I get it. It's it's not the same as, you know, the working nine to five for many, many years and all the hard work that goes into that. But you got to give yourself some credit. All right. If, if anything, I will uh, touch upon one part that you did say. I, the only place that I will give myself credit is the the place of mental fortitude. Mm-hmm. I know that stress itself is beyond anything one of the things philosophically that just humans are going to struggle with. And uh, it's something that one of my daily thoughts is how to conquer the any stress whatsoever. And I believe the exposure therapy that I've had in my life of constantly being in front of huge crowds of people and you can say like you know it's 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 an old yarn but you know it's it's regularly expressed that some of people's greatest fears is public speaking you know embarrassment all of those things and i believe i've just had so many opportunities to sort of break down or even callous over that that tender point in a lot of people's minds i am extremely fearless i'm ready to go at any moment on tv and subject myself to any possible you know ridicules just so that i can be the man in the arena and i can go for it and i'm always ready to i practice way more than i study in almost any game that i play i'm I'm really more of a practitioner chess for instance you know a lot of my contemporaries and people who've reached a high level uh they you know hit the books they go through lines and they are highly attuned to make sure that they don't get into certain types of situations and so they are really adept at variations that they've put through stockfish and they've gone over them and i on the other hand have played for 100,000 games online uh, more games than most people have played and it's more of kind of meditative and maybe a reflective of just breaking down any nerves whatsoever you know i've played so much that i don't really treat it as a uh, a precious uh, moment like there was a time in my life where you know i was teaching in my school and you know maybe i would do three hours of teaching maybe i would do a after school class do a few private tutoring lessons and then immediately thereafter i'm going to an underground poker game you know i'm talking like the heyday of me playing and even over the last 10 years as well I go to an underground poker game and i'm at this underground poker game and on my phone in between hands i'm playing chess and i'm logging 15 hours of poker after you know 
playing chess. And then, you know, maybe the next night I am at a trivia night. You know, people are asking me like, man, how, how do you know so much trivia stuff? By getting a lot wrong. How are you so good at chess? By losing a lot. Man, how do you do so well at like th- at this or that? I've seen so many hands. I've lost many, many big hands in many, many, many ways. And like, yeah, I, I think just the experience of getting beat 10 times as much as anyone else in every single game. Like, my mom used to sit and play Scrabble with me. After she would play her Scrabble tournament and play her hard friends, she would just beat my butt over and over. She didn't even want to play me, but I just, I'm like a really seasoned loser. And that's why I've beaten more people at more things. You could go on chess.com and like look at the top thousand people in terms of games who's played. I dwarf most people. Now, how much time have I spent studying? I don't know. Not only do I play more games of chess than most people, I also never, ever have resigned a game. I don't. I don't quit in my games. So that means not only do I lose more than most people, I'm in more losing positions for more time than most people. So psychologically speaking, if I were to be afraid of losing at this point after having spent more hours in like moving my king around a board where people have been feeling like they've been torturing me. It's a thing that if I were to describe it to most people, it sounds insane. Some kind of masochistic exercise. But really, as I said earlier, it's meditative. I don't even uh, like feel any of the burn anymore. It's kind of like I embrace and endure it just because I know so many people couldn't. And uh, that actually makes me really happy. Now, you know, the money aspect of poker and the losing did get complicated for a while. There's a lot of poker games that I played and a lot of hands, and especially being in a poker room for eight to ten hours and, you know, going up and down with volatility. And one thing I did learn was, uh, you know, to, to not kind of chase that dragon and to learn how to cut the losses in poker. If I'm in this game and these people are all absolute maniacs and they're like sort of trying to every single play make a hero call like yeah you you just you start sharpening your knife and you start making those hero calls as well and they seem less heroic you know absolutely they, they seem and feel less heroic because it just becomes a commonplace thing like i started streaming on twitch and you know people were starting to get blown away by some of these games that i was winning in chess they're like man you were down so much material and i was like hey i was wasn't i like i don't notice anymore like i'm just so callous to the things that seem like outliers to people who don't play as often i also think something that really struck me in all of these things that you were saying is that you say you wanted to avoid the grind and you didn't want to work hard but as you described to me your schedule and how you're good at all these games like you are working more than eight hours a day Okay, well, um, as a collector of quotations, I'll give you one right here that's a little banal and trite. If you find something you love, then you'll never work a day in your life. Ah, so you don't count it. You don't count it. That's a thing. I, I, I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm like, ha ha ha. Like, it's great to me. Like, absolutely. Like, I'll play a Blitz tournament and I'll crush it. Like, I think I almost always cash in Blitz tournaments just because, yeah, it's... Uh... One more quote. How about this? Money won is sweeter than money earned. Money won is sweeter than money earned. Huh. Love that. It is and, uh, uh, Paul Newman, I think, in The Hustler who says that. 
And, you know, he's the great pool shark. And there's a truth to it. You know, we're all in the arena fighting for the same. It's not like I'm just sort of like collecting my 401k. So, I'm like, when I'm getting this money, it could have been yours. So when I'm spending it, it feels better. You know, it's just like it's really a psychological little kind of uh, delight to, to win it and to know that you can so that you always know that you're never out of work because you can always win money. The other thing that strikes me as a common thread through poker, chess, and Jeopardy, and especially for you and your approach to all these games, is that it's so much about the opponent and thinking about them and putting yourself in their shoes and what's going to make them uncomfortable, rather than just like studying ranges or studying openings or studying trivia. And that you're really taking that approach in all your games to the biggest level. It is a zero sum. I need to destroy you. I'm not trying to uplift me. You know, I'm not trying to play faster than you when I'm playing in Blitz. I'm trying to make you play slower. I'm not trying to have the better hand. I'm trying to make you fold. I'm not trying to know more than you on the Jeopardy board. I'm trying to make sure that you don't get to answer and, and do the things that you know. So, for instance, I'm on the show Masterminds, and there's not much strategy, even though it is uh, billed as a game of strategy. However, there's a lot of time element to Masterminds. So when we get into situations where we have leads, in order to protect the leads, we're choosing slower, we're answering slower, we're making sure that we don't finish off the board so that we don't allow our opponents to, and you know, Muffy and Ken are just insanely good and frankly better than me at trivia, but I beat them a fair amount. Even though Ken is the greatest of all time, you know, I've probably beaten him six or seven times in trivia, heads up. Because, you know, I'm trying to use any bits of strategy I can to sort of answer something quicker or a little slower or uh, maybe get him away from a certain place somehow, some way or, you know, anything. It's all gamesmanship, to be honest. And when did you realize that you had a talent in these games? Because you mentioned playing Scrabble with your mom. Is that what it dated back to? Around the same time when I was younger, I had a hard time reading, maybe even from first grade. and. I kind of always was probably a great and precocious, bright student in school, but never a hard worker. And, you know, my parents divorced maybe when I was 10, 11. And at that point, you know, I kind of was left to my devices. My, my, you know, my mom left and, you know, my dad started working. He hadn't done that before. And I was kind of like in the 90s on the streets. So I started going to Washington Square Park and, you know, I had all this Scrabble information and I was like spending time at YMCA's. And, you know, by the time I was 16, I was in Washington Square Park for hours. And, you know, from that point, you know, I was able to go to the places like the Flea House and I was able to discover the chess forum and the Xanadu and like places where people started to teach me backgammon. And, you know, I started to get into the money element because, you know, frankly, you know, I was packing bags in stores and I wanted options to get me, you know, a better life. And because I excelled at games, no matter what the game was, it wasn't, wouldn't say it's just that I excelled at games. A, I can learn rules of games quickly. And B, I've never been afraid of losing. Like, I just, losing is a part of winning to me. It deeply, deeply is. I don't mind losing. I just hate losing the same way twice. And I think if you can always take that mentality, just like lose better, lose different. Lose different. I love that. And your mom, when did you start beating her in Scrabble? Oh yeah, I dropped Quixotic on my mom and she did not want to play with me anymore. I literally put that 
Q on the triple word score. I put the X on the triple letter score and I put that blank at the end and I created a bingo. I dropped 170 points in her in one play and she just was, I remember the look on her face and uh, yeah, that was it. Like I, I surpassed her by the time I was like 18, even though she had played like dozens of tournaments, like Saturdays when I was a kid. And that was fun. Beating my brother also at chess was huge. My brother has a probably lifetime 99 to 1 score against me, but you know, that was the last time he played chess was when I beat him. And you know, now that you know, I'm a master level player, I would say he's probably still around 1400, but you know, the one thing that he has on me is the, the score. Hey. <laughs> you know, you know about sibling rivalries better than most. Your brother is an amazing, amazing poker player and an amazing, amazing chess player, but. There's nothing more motivated than being a younger sibling and wanting to beat an older sibling at something that they love playing. So, And he's like you. He's like a pan gamer. He loves all games. Well, not all, but he really likes to get in there with all these different games. Me, I'm a little slower. The issue with me is I do not learn rules quickly. I need a little time. So that makes it a little harder. I don't even know if it's rules, but you know how every game has like its central tension that makes it interesting and something that people will play? Game, yeah, yeah it, that, it takes me a little longer to get that. And, and so a lot of times I'm just like, I don't like this game. I need, to, I need to force myself to keep playing it so that I can like capture what that is. I think that is a great point you made. And even more, I think a lot of people misattribute so much more into the skeleton of a game, the, the bare bones of a game. As I've been a chess teacher for such a long time, you know, there is so much to chess the ebb and flow and the, the power of the game. But at the end of the day, you win at chess by checkmating the opponent's king. Like it's, 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 it's a truth that you can't deny. And that's just what I teach my students. Like uh, there's a lot of things I could teach them, but stop them from checkmating you and, and, and checkmate them. And, and that's how you win. You know, going back to Greg Shahadi for a second, there was a moment at a party that you invited me to, like in our early 20s, where we were just hanging out and the Scrabble board came out. And at a certain point in Greg's life, he just kind of threw himself into Scrabble. It was also to beat his mom, by the way. Yeah. So, so my, our mom, R.I.P. Yeah. So that's why that resonated with I, me. I, I absolutely <laughs> do also remember wanting to play your mom in one game, being over at your house and, and her you know, having the Scrabble board out. So Greg beat his mom and Greg got really good. And then he pulled the Scrabble board out and I was like, yeah, I'll play you. And the fact that he pulled out the Kronos and put it next to the Scrabble board shocked me. But I said, well, fine, let's play. We put 15 minutes on the clock and I thought I was amazing. I had played a Scrabble tournament. I had beaten my mom. I, I had a Scrabble dictionary at home. I thought, no one, no, none of these chess players can beat me at Scrabble. They have no idea. Greg destroyed me two games. He destroyed me. And at that point, I think I didn't play another kind of game for a year. I was still going to, you know, trivia games as well, but I wanted to beat Greg so bad. So bad. Both of our moms have kind of created this spiral. Exactly. Scrabble. Okay. And then I, I started going to the Metropolitan Scrabble Club and the, the Bridge Honors Club in you know, the Upper East Side. And I read this book, Word Freak. I, I committed to memory two and three letter Scrabble words, you know, all of them. And I was just playing a ton, always with a clock from that point on. Because, you know, if the best players are playing with a clock, like I just, I had shocked myself out of my imaginary sort of 
fantasy world of being amazing at Scrabble because chess players should be able to beat. For some reason, like, it's this maximal idea of, you know, I'm in this world of poker players. When you sit at a poker table, don't you always assume that you're the best chess player? Yeah, unless and, I recognize someone. Yeah, right. exactly. And when you're at a chess tournament, don't you think you could beat most of them at poker? Yes. Exactly. I've never entered a trivia competition where I thought, well, you know, I might not be the best trivia player here, but I'm definitely the best chess player here. So being a pen gamer gives me this kind of sense of ego of not the game I'm playing, but at least like I know I'm not going to be the best at this game, but I'm definitely better at other games than these people are. Yes, in this game. Yes. And that's a kind of a confidence that, is... that I kind of enjoy. It's almost like being a decathlete. That's how I treat my gameplay. Whereas, no, I, I have not, you know, broken the top 5% in the world at any of the games I play. Maybe 10% in trivia. I would say perhaps that's probably the number one game for me in, in the world that, like, at least I can consider myself world class. You know, having become a Jeopardy champion and being in the Learned League and competed in Pro Bowl and so on and so forth. But even then, like, I'm still going to lose to a lot of the great trivia players. I like that you use pan gamer. I was going to say poly gamer, but then Greg's recent blog, check it out. It's a good blog, actually. And he also has a blog about beating my mom in Scrabble eventually after some time. And it's funny because it's like the opposite of your story. Your story was dropping Quixotic. That's how I pronounce it, right? Well, you're thinking of Don Quixote, but the word is Quixotic. Ah, okay. So Quixotic. I didn't realize you pronounce it like that. So Quixotic, you dropped Quixotic for 180 points. Bingo. Greg actually beat my mom in another way by memorizing all the short words. And she was like, what? Yes. <laughs> What's this word? How do you know this word? Your mom is literate, <laughs> very literary, and knows like her roots and her etymology, her pronouns, her suffixes, her prefixes, her hooks. And, you know, Greg is just kind of like a gamer. So he's like, well, I have to squeeze it. It's like learning endgames. Learning the two and three letter words in Scrabble is saying it doesn't matter how many words you know if you can't place them on the board. You know, especially for your casual chess player, your casual trivia player, your casual poker player. You know, once you start getting deeper into the game and you realize there's this meta that you also need to master in order to beat the players who are much more experienced, you do need to say to yourself, listen, like, it's all good and well if you can know 30 moves of Rui Lopez theory and win my rook. But then in the end game, what are you doing if you can't, like... I know, how to I know how to hang on with my bishop. You know, I know how to hang on, you know, against players who are better than me because I've played 100,000 endgames. Like, literally, just today, like, my friend Denari, who's, like, my... He's my Moriarty because I'm more of the villain than he is. He plays more conventional, strong positional chess. But I play, you know, this haywire kind of insane style where it doesn't matter what the material count is because I've learned a million different little tricks to be able to get back when I'm losing that most people don't even bother to learn because they're either resigning or they're just kind of like, oh, no one would win this. I don't believe that. I've lost so many times and I've made other people lose so many times that when people lose to me, the analytical mind of when they lose to me is they chalk it up to, that's such an outlier. That's just random occurrence. I'm not going to worry about it. But to me, it's every day. I beat people like it every day so it's a it's a fat part of the bell curve jonathan corbella he gives us so much to think about really i mean on all the different types of grid whether it be chess poker scrabble and of course jeopardy he is obviously a fantastic inspiration for those of us looking to 
play more aggressively, think more about what our opponent is thinking. And of course, when we're trying to think about quotations, (laughs) you know, it's funny that you took that failure and turned it into this, uh, you know, amazing repertoire of quotations. Do you have an absolute favorite to finish off this podcast with? Absolutely. Without a doubt, I'll, I'll go with Memento Mori. That's a good one. It, it's almost like uh, Latin, you know, remember that we're all, we're all going out. So in the game that you're playing, we're all going to lose eventually. You know, the king and the pawn, they all go back into the same box. So make it happen in whatever game you're playing. Enjoy life. I love that. And that is something that I believe games teach us, that we are all the same and that we can connect through a game no matter, you know, how much money you have, where you come from, what language you speak, whether it's poker, chess, Scrabble. Apparently Thai people are the best Scrabble players. No matter what, uh, you know, your circumstances are, you learn games and that's one of the great eveners. You know, even if you are in a wheelchair or, you know, you don't have access to this or that, you can still be amazing at poker and chess and Scrabble and trivia and all the other games. Go, backgammon. I didn't even talk about Go or backgammon, but I love both of those games as well. (laughs) Ageless, ageless. Well, thank you so much to Jonathan Korbla for clicking off 9-5 suited. What's a boat? (laughs) What is a boat? Thank you, Jonathan. Jonathan Korbla, you can find him on. Actually, can you remind me your Twitch handle? Is just going to be my last name, C-O-R-B-B-L-A-H. My Instagram, Corbla. My Twitter, Corbla. My Twitch, Corbla. My email address, Corbla, C-O-R-B-B-L-A-H. So Jonathan Corbla, at Corbla everywhere, Twitch, Instagram, Twitter. Follow him on Twitch for sure. He's been doing some streaming. And of course, you can also find him on Mastermind. And hey, you can even look up some of those old game shows on YouTube, find a couple things (laughs) that'll keep you entertained. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to thepokergrid.com. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax-deductible donation to U.S. Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff.